Good morning. So I was a little late to church actually this morning, um, and I didn't get my chance to get myself my coffee. And honestly, I didn't even get my sermon introduction done this morning. So I sat in the sound booth, and I figured if I don't have a sermon introduction, then maybe I'll just do a little Christmas holiday quiz, okay? So we're going to do a little Christmas holiday quiz, and the answers are simply true or false, okay? Can we, can we do this, true or false? Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Very good. I like that. Thank you. Thank you, young man. True or false, Jesus was born with a beard. True. True or false, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. True or false, Mary had a sister named Elizabeth. True or false, look that up. I think she did, I'm not sure. True or false, the wise men brought frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Fees oil soap. True or false, grandma's fruitcake is very tasty. That's right, that's true. You need to be nice to grandma, even if that stuff's nasty. True or false, Santa's real name is Baker Mayfield Aclaus. True. True or false, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. True, moving on. True or false, we all love to talk about the great parts of the Christmas narrative like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the star of Bethlehem. True. We love that stuff. We love that stuff. That's where we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about all those icons of Christmas. Like I mentioned last week, it's something that's really important to us. I'm afraid I'm going to knock this down, so I'm going to upset the band and move this back. Is that okay, band? Thank you very much. I'm glad you agree. Sweet. All right. So we're going to talk about the icons of Christmas because they're really important They impact the way we celebrate Christmas, and they still have meaning for us 2,000 years after the historical events. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about those Christmas icons. But we really didn't do that last week because we focused on the spiritual elements of Christmas instead of the physical and historical elements. So we focused on Christmas from the perspective of the mind of God instead of Christmas from the perspective of the work of God. So in reading John chapter one, we didn't talk about Mary and Joseph. We didn't talk about the three wise men. We didn't talk about shepherds or singing angels. We didn't talk about the star of Bethlehem. We didn't talk about the manger. We didn't talk about any of those things. But we did talk about the foundational event of Christmas. We talked about God taking on human flesh in order to save us, to restore us, to renew us, and bring us back into a relationship with him. Now, it's not that those other iconic details of the Christmas narrative are not important. They are essential, but in the big picture, they're just nice stories without the central truth that God came to earth in human flesh to create a bridge between heaven and earth to make a way for God to be restored back to humanity, to make a way to make access for me to get in touch with God. So most of the things we celebrate in the Christmas narrative don't really mean anything without that central truth. But now that we've talked about that, now we understand that truth that God became flesh, that he made a way back to him for us. Now that we've talked about Christmas from the perspective of heaven, we can talk about Christmas. We can focus on our perspective of Christmas, the perspective of us 
here below, okay? So we're going to be talking about the icons of Christmas, our favorite icons of Christmas. The stories that we love, like Mary and Joseph, the three wise men, the shepherds and the singing angels, the manger, the star of Bethlehem, starting next week. Now, don't get me wrong, I wanna talk about the Christmas narrative, because you're like, ah, I wanna talk about that, we will. I wanna talk about the Christmas narrative, but I promise what I wanna talk about today is not your favorite part of the Christmas narrative. And I know that for 100% certainty because I bet you 10 bucks, you never even read it. Because I've been a Christian for about 20 years, I never read it until I went to Bible college, okay? We're going to talk about these scriptures that we're gonna put on the screen. There we go. All right. Now, if you want to read along, you can use the Bible app. You go to Bible, Bible app. What is it? You version. It's on the internet. Go there. Go to the internet and you'll find it. Or you can go to alteredchurch.info, select sermon notes, and it will open it up magically. All right. So what I'm going to do, Jared, can you actually, okay, so we, we okay, there's a lot of them. There's like 17 verses of these. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to read these out loud, all right? What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna point to you, Jared, when I want you to advance the slide. I want you guys to read these on your own because I know that you'll, you'll never read them on your own unless we do it here because they're just, just, it's just, you know, just a bunch of names, okay? So Jared, start back at verse one. I want everyone to focus on the screen and just read these and I will read them to my, myself in my mind and I'll point to Jared when he advances the slide and then we'll get through all of them, okay? But I'm not gonna read them because I want you to read them, cool? All right. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> it's not a very exciting read, right? Now, look, I love the Bible. I love the Bible, but not all parts of the Bible are super interesting, but they all carry meaning. So as you read this list, we can just, look, it just, it just it doesn't really hold your attention. There's a bunch of names that you can't pronounce. There's 42 generations of names. Now, last week in my sermon, which was on the internet, and we made another little snippet of that, I said 14 generations. Like, so I'm not sure if like a thousand people saw me say that, but it was untrue. Because it's 42 generations. There's three sets of 14. I did that on purpose, so you'd know I'm, you know, make mistakes, or you could have just talked to my wife and she'd tell you the same. But the, the, this generation, these 42 generations, span the course of 4,000 years. And all of this is very interesting. It is not very exciting to read about. So if you're like me, when you get to this part, you know, like you're feeling Christmassy, you know, I don't know, my family, we used to get around the fire and read the Christmas thing. We'd skip right over this. You want to get to the good part. You want to get to the exciting part, Mary and Joseph, the wise men, shepherds, singing angels, the manger, the star of Bethlehem. Oh, you know, you want to get to all that stuff. You want to skip this. So why is it there? What's the point? When this guy, Matthew, who wrote this book, when he was writing this, why did he spend the time to research this and write this down? Why did he think it was important to talk about Jesus' family in such a detailed way? Now, I believe that if we took the time to study this, we'd understand why, because it's really important, really, 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 really important and relevant to understanding who Jesus is and how he relates to us. And I believe it's so important 
that I believe if we spend time weeding through some of this stuff, you'll leave here with some information that I truly believe could change your life. Like, I really, really, really believe that. Now, I know today we probably have some new visitors, okay? We have probably 5, 10, 15, 20 new visitors every single week. And if you're new this week or this month or the last couple weeks, we want to say welcome to you. So if you're part of the Ultra Church family, can you put your hands together for the new people? Let them know we appreciate them. We're glad that you're here. Now, there's a little bit of psychology of being a new person in church, okay? If you're a new person in church, I guarantee you that you feel three emotions and maybe four. We want you to feel three. We don't want you to feel the fourth, okay? Now, the, 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 the first three emotions that you feel, number one is you get out of your car and you get, you know, pull in the parking lot, get out of your car. The first one is fear. Am I going to know anybody? What am I supposed to wear? Can I wear a hat? Do I have to wear a suit? Do I have to wear a tie? Are other people going to like me? The second emotion is confusion. Where do my kids go? Where's the coffee? Where's the bathroom? Why are their pants so tight? Why do they keep using strange words like Lamb of God and blood of Jesus? I just want the beard of Jesus, not the blood of Jesus. What's all that about? And then there's maybe a sense of hope. They're not so bad. Maybe they're okay. The music's good. My gosh, that sermon is so good. Oh. Maybe I can fit in here. Maybe this is my family. Maybe this is a place that, 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 that I can be comfortable. Now, there is that fourth emotion. And that fourth emotion, we hope you don't feel this, but I know this can happen because I've visited churches before and I, I've had this emotion. That fourth emotion is remorse. Remorse. Because... You wonder, why is he talking about new visitors? That's me. Why is he talking about me? Why are there so many songs? Why are those three people with the same color shirt? That's weird. Why isn't the coffee stronger? Why are his pants so tight? Why does he keep yelling? He, know, he knows something about me. That pastor's got some magic. He knows I'm a Steelers fan. He knows I was watching Game of Thrones last night. Look, I see, okay. This part of the sermon or this part of this message is where the remorse is gonna kick in, okay? Because this is really tough stuff. This genealogy stuff is very long and it's drawn out and it's kind of boring. But what I wanna promise you is that if you stick with me for these three hours during this sermon, you won't regret it. Because we're going to go name by name, every single one of these people, we're going to learn how to pronounce their name because every single person's important. Every name is important. So we're going to go through all these people from a bit of dad to Zadok. So I hope you prepare to lunch. Because it's going to be a long, long message about the genealogy of Jesus. I'm just kidding. Maybe. You're thinking, honey, we ain't never going back there again. I never got to go back to that church. Now, if we're going to talk about Jesus' genealogy, if we're going to talk about the family of Jesus, we have to start by talking about that one really scary and offensive F word, family. Family can be really, really tricky, right? Amen? Yes. Like it or not, your family contributes to the story of you. Like it or not, your family determines who you are. It helps you become the person that you are today. Now, some of you have really great families, families that have loved you and supported you, nurtured you, helped you. Does anybody here have a great family? Would you raise your hand? 
Great family. Okay, that's really good. I'm really glad to hear that. Don't be getting arrogant or sanctimonious, okay? You're blessed. But here's the thing. I know each one of you who had your hand up has at least one crazy uncle, right? At least one crazy uncle. At least one crazy uncle where you're at the grocery store and you see them and you don't want to see them, right? Like you see them over there and you're kind of like pulling your car over this way because you know if they see you, they're going to say something embarrassing like real loud. So you're trying to hide. They're like, hey, John, how's the infection doing? Did you get, did you get the cream? Is everything okay? Is it still contagious? And you're just like, man, I don't want to talk to this guy. And how that goes. I think that's how my family feels about me when they see me at the grocery store. <laughs> or maybe they're just sick of, you know, hearing people come to them and say, oh, you Aaron's brother, huh? You hear what he said last week about, about 14 generations in the Bible? That ain't true. What kind of pastor is he? So we know that all great family have crazy people. Some families are like full of crazy people, like full of crazy, everybody is crazy. Now, um, Casey, do me a favor. Turn that camera away so people who may watch this don't see what's about to happen. Just turn it away a little bit, just for a second. Okay, okay, good. Now, I have to ask, if you have a crazy family, like everyone's crazy, can you, can you put your hand up? It's just us. No one's watching. Okay. If they're super crazy, put two hands up. Right? Right, Okay. So we know that sometimes crazy runs in the family. And there's a lot of crazy. So much crazy, we don't know if we can get out of it. That's what happens sometimes. Now, we can joke about it because sometimes that's all you can do when you've got family that's crazy, right? But this stuff, and we're about to get a little serious here, this stuff can mess you up for your entire life. Your family, your family dynamic, your family stuff can do stuff that turns you into a bad parent. It can influence your mind so greatly that it can turn you abusive. It can produce feelings in you that you hate. Men, do you struggle with anger problems? Where'd you get that? Was it your dad? Ladies, do you build your identity or, measure, or feel like you have to measure up to a certain standard based on how clean your house is or how well-behaved your children are? Where'd you get that from? Was your mom? Is that your mom? This family stuff is a really big deal, especially during the holidays because the holidays are about family and all that baggage and all that difficult stuff falls right into our laps during the holidays when we all get together. With all this in mind, does that list that we just read seem a little bit more important than it did a few minutes ago when we called it boring? Yes. Because if our family says something about us, then Jesus' family would say something about him to us, right? And more so than you know. Because as hard as it seems, we can break out of the curse of our own family if we take the necessary steps, right? Like move down south, get some counseling, maybe a restraining order or like a, like a cute Facebook name that no one knows except your friends so your family can't search on Facebook. You couldn't do that in the ancient world because your family was everything. Your family determined the job that you were gonna have. It determined your religion. It determined your social class for the rest of your life. Essentially, your family was the single most important factor in how your life was going to turn out. You had no control. So as you can imagine, the names in Jesus' genealogy tell us a great deal 
about who that baby in a manger would become. Now, as we go through these names, we don't know much about them, but we know many of them are just a bunch of normal people. Just a bunch of regular Joe Thams. Get it, regular Joe, Joe Sam, because he's in here and it's like an Old Testament name. And jo- Write that down, it'll be funny later. Take that home with you. Note to self, don't ever say that one again. People didn't laugh at all. Good, got that one in there. So there's also a bunch of really important people, aside from the regular Jothams, <laughs> like kings, right? And priests and leaders. Look at the first few names. David is the most well-known king in antiquity. He's a hero in the Christian religion. He's a hero in the Jewish religion. And his fame is probably only surpassed by that second name, Abraham, who is the father of the Jews, the father of the entire nation of Israel. And Abraham is revered by the Jewish people, the Christian people, and the people of Islam. So being related to one of these two guys, let alone both of them, would be like having George Washington in your family history. That'd be a big deal. So just from the start, by looking at this family, we can assume that Jesus is going to be a great leader and a person of incredible influence because he's related to Abraham and David. But these men, if you didn't know it, are very deeply flawed. Just starting with David. David was a murderer. Yes, David was mighty. He was a great warrior. He was good looking, rich and popular, but he killed people. Even one of his best friends. Maybe you haven't heard the story, but David was walking along the roof of his palace one day and he sees this girl taking a bath. He's like, dang, that's my best friend's wife. So he sends her a message on Instagram. And she comes over, they watch Netflix. Next thing you know, she's having a baby. He's pregnant. So what's David do? He sends her husband off to the front lines to die in battle so he can steal his girl. Not so cool, man. Not so cool. Abraham is a much better. Abraham was a liar. More than one time, Abraham lied about his wife's identity, which really resulted in putting people in innocent danger. And he violated his marriage and had a child with a concubine. And as you keep reading past Abraham, you read about his children and his grandchildren, and they're highly dysfunctional. They're liars. They're thieves. They cheat. They're dishonest. They're corrupt. They're murderers. If you open up the news app on your phone, everyone's got a news app. I use Apple News. If you open up the news app on your phone, the things that you read about, Abraham's family probably did all those things. Highly dysfunctional. Highly dysfunctional. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the ancient Near East, but family was very important. And I'm wondering what this says about Jesus and how he's going to turn out because there's fame in the story, there's recognition in the story, there's power, but also incredible dysfunction. You've got a bunch of men here, and you know, the men are always gonna mess it up. Angry men, aggressive men, men with a past, men who've killed, men who've been violent, men who've stolen and pillaged and plundered, men who have too much power, too much wealth, too much dysfunction. So if I'm looking at the family lineage of Jesus and I'm gonna try to take a guess at what kind of man he's gonna become, I'd guess that he's gonna be just like his forefathers. Powerful, but flawed. Someone like Winston Churchill or Barry Bonds or John F. Kennedy, a person who is very talented and has great power, but is also deeply flawed. But if I drew that conclusion based on just those names so far, my conclusion would be premature because I've only looked at the men. 
There are five women in Jesus's genealogy. A woman named Tamar, a woman named Ruth, a woman named Rahab, a woman only identified as the wife of Uriah, and then of course a young man, a woman named Mary, who's Jesus's mother. Now understand that if you look at your genealogy, you'd see plenty of names that belong to women because we're not afraid to record the history of, of women in our family. We don't have a bias against it. This wasn't the case in the ancient world. It's sad, but unfortunately true that women were held in low regard, so it was very rare for their names to be included in a genealogy. Yet in this genealogy, we see the names of five women recorded, which tells us that this genealogy is rare, but also that we should, we should pay attention to those names. We should pay attention because they have something to teach us. Let's just start with Ruth. Ruth, Ruth is cool. I like Ruth. Ruth is one of the only characters in the Bible who has an impeccable reputation. Like if you wanna know about people in the Bible who are pretty much perfect, you've got Jesus, you've got Ruth, and then you got Jesus, okay? Because the Bible is a story of a bunch of like really dysfunctional, messed up people, and Ruth is called honorable and decent. It says she's a woman of virtue and noble character. Anybody would be glad to have Ruth as their relative. But there's a lot of people with dysfunction in this Bible, including the three women that are listed next. Let's start with Tamar. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament and your kids are in church with you right now, you're gonna cover their ears because you know why well, I'm gonna tell the story of Tamar, okay? Here's your warning. Okay, Tamar conceived her son, which was also Jesus' relative, by soliciting sex with her father-in-law, Judah. Why? So she could benefit from her, his inheritance. Tamar's like, okay, well, like I'm gonna be poor and my father-in-law's rich, so if I have a baby with him, then I'll be rich too. So when he's sleeping, like, you know, I'm gonna go in there and he's gonna think I'm a prostitute. You know, I'm gonna, you know what I'm saying? Okay? So that's what happened. And Judah, when he finds out that she's pregnant, this is how dysfunctional this family is, he threatens to throw her into a pit of fire until Maury Povich comes out. He's like, Judah, there's a 99% chance this baby's yours. That's the family of Jesus. And at this time, with all you know so far, I'm having serious doubts if there can be any family more dysfunctional than this family, even your family that you think is super messed up. And we're not even done yet because we've got Rahab. Rahab isn't even in the same nationality or ethnic group as the rest of these folks. She's an ethnic outsider. She only joined the family because she sold out her entire country. She betrayed the Canaanites, which was her family, her own people, to help the Israelites, which resulted in the destruction of her city, her people, and ultimately her entire nation. By the way, Rahab was also a prostitute. Then it says in verse six, the wife of Uriah. Uriah isn't even mentioned. We don't even, the wife of Uriah, we don't even know her name. It doesn't tell us her name here. But then we start doing some investigating. We start reading a little bit back in the Old Testament and we realize that Uriah was a loyal soldier and friend to the king of Israel. But the king of Israel, David, killed Uriah so he could steal his wife. Remember this? We just talked about this. Her name is Bathsheba. Her and David had a child together who was an ancestor to Jesus. Does this sound like a talk show? This sounds like a talk show. Is Jerry Springer still on? It's in syndication. This is all in there, I'm sure. 
but this is Jesus's family. A family of gender outcasts, racial outcasts, moral outcasts, a family marked by adultery, dishonesty, brutality, and violence. There's incest in this family, murder, prostitution, greed, pride, and really anything that you can imagine or shake your hat at or judge or wave your finger at is in this story. So if we are opening the Bible for the first time and I come across this genealogy and I know maybe some of the backstory of some of these characters, I'd expect that the product of this family, this baby born in Bethlehem, would be highly dysfunctional. Because as we said, your family writes your story for you. The Bible even talks about, in the Old Testament, this uh, concept of generational curses. Where this, uh, where the bad decisions of a father could impact children for three or four generations. But as we look back to the life of Jesus, we see the opposite of what he was born into. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't sit on a throne of influence. He didn't take advantage of people. He was a healer. He was a teacher. He valued and loved the marginalized. He spent time with people whose society had cast aside. He was friend to the sinner. He was a hope to the hopeless. He was rest for the weary. He was a light for people in darkness. And he did not seek after power as we would have. He saw power in the act of stooping low to serve other people. So it's hard to understand how this could be possible because in our experience, and as I've been saying this morning, you are what your family is. They write your story for you. Your story is not your own. It's nearly impossible to break out of the dysfunction that you've been raised in. And you know that if you've tried. So why is Jesus so different than the family he came out of? When heaven descended... When God became flesh, when that baby was born in Bethlehem, he was the firstborn of a new creation. He was the firstborn of a new family, the firstborn of a new lineage and a new hope. What this means is that when we are in a relationship with him, when we place our trust in him and our love in him, that we are also a new creation. We are also a part of a new family. We also have a new lineage of hope. And this impacts us in three ways that I promise you, like I said when we started, can change your life. From the moment you hear this to the moment you walk out of here to the moment you die, this could change your life. It means, first of all, that if we have come out of a family of dysfunction, that you are not destined to be like your mother. You are not destined to be like your father. It means that you may have come from a long line of insert the blank here. This may have been the story of all your, uh, your entire family, multiple generations, but that doesn't mean you need to be that thing yourself. Maybe you got a family full of racists, a family full of addicts, 
alcoholics, thieves, abusers. That doesn't have to be you. Because on Christmas morning, God sent you a new story. God sent you a new path, a new road to find hope and freedom. Now, I know that resonates with some people in here because you've grown up in dark circumstances. I get that. I understand that. You grew up in deep dysfunction. That's how it was for me. So I know the freedom that comes from being released from that. Now, this also impacts us if we were the ones who caused the dysfunction. Because maybe as you sit in here, maybe you were the abuser. Maybe you were the addict. Maybe you were the one who inflicted pain. Maybe you were the one who feels guilty and, and, and you hurt people and maybe your kids or your parents or your spouse or your friends or the people at work, they won't let you forget it and they've defined you by that mistake. Understand that Jesus came to earth through people like you and through people who are worse than you and through people like me so he can save and restore people like you and me. He came through us so he can save us. So if you have that, that, that finger that you've been using to accuse yourself, you got that, that finger that you point right here and you say, you did it. You are wrong. You don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve love. You don't deserve care. You don't deserve Jesus. You don't deserve God becoming flesh for you. You don't deserve that. I want you to take that same finger and I want you to point it at your heart. But this time I want you to say, he came for me. He's gonna use me. I'm a new creation. He's adopted me. I say, he came for me. He's gonna use me. I'm a new creation. He's adopted me. He came for me. He's gonna use me. I'm a new creation. He's adopted me. He came for me. He's gonna use me. I'm a new creation. He's adopted me. If you hear this and you believe this, I promise you it can change your entire understanding of who you are in the presence of Jesus and who he is in your life. It's real, it's true. Every single day, this impacts you every single breath you take. Now the third application is for those who've had a good family. A family with limited dysfunction, but a family that was marginalized or judged because of your race, your ethnicity, your social class, or the neighborhood you grew up in. If that's you, I want you to look at Jesus' family because yes, Jesus had some kings in his family, but he also had some poor people. Gender outcasts, racial outcasts, the poor, the uninvited, the unintended, the underprivileged. So what does that say about Jesus' care for you? It says that Jesus, the very Son of God, who had all that power and attributes of God, more compassionate and more loving than any being on earth because he created you and crafted you before the world was even thought of. That he understands you. That he advocates for you, defends you, and chooses you. 
And when we, the rest of us who are not marginalized, who are not poor, who are not gender outcasts or racial outcasts, when the rest of us stand against those people, listen to me, we stand in opposition to God. Whenever I stand against a person because they're poor, when I stand against a person because they're a different social class than me, when I stand against a person because they're a different race than me, I'm standing in opposition to God. When I stand against the marginalized, when I stand against, hear me now, when I stand against the immigrant, illegal or legal, because there's no distinction in God's mind. We are all citizens of one family under heaven. So when we stand against someone like that, illegal or legal, immigrant or citizen, poor or rich, black or white, Chinese or Hispanic or Honduran, we are standing in opposition to God. So if that's you, if you've been marginalized, if you've been mistreated by the church, I want to tell you I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But know this. God was born through you so he could advocate for you. He was born through you so he could defend you. Take comfort and confidence in this, knowing that Jesus is for you, and if he is for you, who could be against you? Family can seem like a curse sometimes. Listen, listen, and I want you to hear this. When heaven descended, the curse was broken. I'm going to say this again. I want you to remember this. When heaven descended, the curse was broken. When Jesus showed up, your background and your baggage stopped owning you. When that baby showed up, it gave you the power to say, I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to be like him. When that baby showed up, it broke the chains. It pins you down to your store that wasn't even your fault. And it said, you have freedom. You can proclaim freedom in Jesus. Because when heaven descended, the curse was broken. And it means you don't have to sit in guilt and shame for all of your life. It means that your sins are forgiven and you can be fully restored. It means that your sins don't define you. Your mistakes won't own you. And it means that Jesus takes your broken pieces and puts them back together for glory. When heaven descended, the curse was broken. When heaven descended, the curse was broken. And that means that you, the marginalized, the outcast, the poor, the unloved, could have a place with him, could be used by him, and would be elevated by him, and could change the world through him. When heaven descended, the curse was broken. When heaven descended, 
the curse was broken and that means that all of us together are his church the broken the lost the hopeless the weary the blind the forgotten the left out and we will praise him because he's made us a new creation and so we will sing out in hope because we are a new lineage a new family a new creation a new hope so we'll give him a shout of praise if you believe it 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 the greatest thing about the church is that we are a family right like we are a new creation and we are a new lineage because we're adopted in the family of God and what we have as a family is a common love common devotion, a common purpose under Christ to change the world. And I like to say in our pocket of history, in this pocket of history, we're all called by God, identified and placed here for a purpose that's bigger than we can even ask or imagine. Now as family, one of the things that we do together is pray together. And before you leave today, we're just going to be just a couple, just like two more minutes. What I want to do is I want to ask the ripples that come up here. That's you guys. And I want to ask anybody else in this family who's interested in praying over them to come on up on stage. Anybody else want to come up? There's a secret passage back here. It's like Narnia. But you're still in Painsville when you come out. to kind of put your hands on each other. Come on up. If you're not up here, maybe you can put the hand on the person next to you. I know it's weird. This is where the remorse part comes into the whole church thing. That's okay. You're going to be all right. Put your hand on each other. Let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, you have called us into this pocket of history for your purpose, for your glory calling that's greater than we can ask or imagine. And just when we see the full power of it, you unleash something more. You give us a bigger glimpse of heaven. And Father, our friends here have left home to make a new home, sold everything to make disciples. Lord, I know that life isn't easy. And so what I ask God is we have our hands on them is that you remind them of how much they are loved. Not just by us, God, but by you. Remind them how much they're loved, the strength of their calling, so even when they get discouraged, God, they know that you are with them, that you've called them, that you've selected them, and you are empowering them daily. This is your church. This is your family. A group of individuals who have come together to worship, come together to love. So, Father, I ask your continued anointing on this family as they travel back to Mexico to be your light into the world. And, Father, I ask that this family, as we stand out here, sitting in our seats, standing on stage, that you can convict us every day in our spirit to support them, to love them, 
to encourage them and also to be inspired by them, knowing God that when we follow you, we will never, never be alone. You will never forsake us. You will always call us yours, always empower us, always bless us, always enable us to change our pocket of history in your name, Jesus. We are family. And today, we pray together, commit to love you together, commit to worship you together. And the family of God says, amen, amen, amen. Church, we love you. We're glad you came today. Be blessed. Have a great day.